0: To kind of imagine when the Lord Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that you may be with me where I am. Jesus preparing a place. And then here we see ivory palaces. You probably were expecting Brother Jim Nisgoda to be with you, but he's come down with uh, his whole household, I believe, actually has been pretty... Uh, slammed by some significant illness. He said he was just sitting still and sweating bullets. So pray for our brother Jim. We'll do that in just a moment because him and his whole household are debilitated and detained from being here because of sickness. So we can remember them in prayer. And uh, he called me, I guess, on Thursday. So he started feeling this on Thursday and it's Saturday and he's still like down or La- yesterday on Saturday he was he was still saying that he felt very ill. So this is multiple days of sickness for our brother. So but I'm glad I got to be here and step in and be the little substitute guy. I hope you guys uh will be blessed and that the province of God in having me here instead of Jim will prove to be something timely and profitable and good for the building up of the church here. If you've got your Bibles, please open to Psalm 45. That's where we're going to be looking at this morning. And before, well, let me read the psalm, and then we will pray. I picked that last song, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. <laughs> I didn't even realize it was a... I picked that last song, The Sands of Time Are Thinking because it folds in so nicely to what we're going to be talking about this morning. A lot of the verses just weave in very, very beautifully and nicely. So Psalm 45, we'll read that together and then pray. Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. Verse 1 My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Verse 5. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people's fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider And incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. That's the word of the Lord from Psalm 45. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, here we are, your people... Lord, so much has happened between the time we breathed our first breath to now. Your kindness, you've kept us alive bodily. And here we are sitting, Lord. And for those of us who have been born again by your spirit, you've not just kept our bodies alive, but you've kept us in the faith. We haven't apostatized. We haven't turned our back on you. You've preserved us. You've been our shepherd. You've kept us. You've popped us in these seats here this morning. We praise you for your multiplied kindnesses toward us over all the course of our life. Oh, Lord, would you be kind to us just one more time? You were kind to us in that first hour by letting Brother Reese, Lord, open the scripture and tell us about the way you've gifted your church, all of us who are saved, Lord God, with spiritual gifts, supernatural things that tend towards the building up of your beloved body. Lord, thank you for that word open to us. Please, Lord, now let this psalm be open to us and minister to us, your people, and strengthen us in the inner man. Lord, we so do not want just our heads to be filled with more information, more data, but but we want the inner man, the innermost being to be built up in the most holy faith. Lord, help that take place. I can't do that, Lord. Not one little pitiful man can just talk and build up your church. But if you, by your spirit, will take ownership of the weak means of men just preaching your word, simplicity and in, in simplicity and faith, Lord, you can make us get stronger. You can do stuff to us that is good and impossible in the arm of the flesh. Lord, please do that. We have come for that purpose. We want impossible, invisible, supernatural things to take place this morning as we look to your word. Holy Spirit, please, as we pray, seek just in our thoughts right now, all your church, all your people joining me in this prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, please let this word build us up as your people and glorify you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen all right psalm 45 for the sake of time i think i'm just going to let the secret be known about what this psalm is about if you have who here has a new king james translation you sitting in front of you with a new king james translation no one good. (laughs) Not good. I like the New King James. I don't want to throw any shade on the New King James. But the New King James sort of takes the surprise and the the thrill of discovery out of it because they answer the, the question of who is this king? And who is this queen? The New King James basically just says in the title. My ESV says as the title, the uninspired, I think, title of this Psalm 45 says, Your throne, O God, is forever. But I think the New King James Version just says. Uh, a wedding song of the Messiah and his bride. Now that's wonderful that they answered the question for you, but I just had the wonderful childlike thrill of discovery to read this psalm and then come to that conclusion without the New King James Version just saying, hey, this is what this is about. But that's what this is about. They weren't wrong. They they just told you something up front instead of letting you kind of find for it and feel it on your own. But I'll just prove it to you just so that there's nothing in your mind that makes you think, oh, Chris, you're spiritualizing. You're, You're reading Christ into this psalm when he, He's not there. You're, you're, you're interpreting this in a kind of inordinate Christological way. And that's you're, you're, it's not good for me, man. Um, just turn to Hebrews 1, real quick. Hebrews chapter 1. This is our authoritative commentary on the Old Testament, is the New Testament. So let's just read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It says there, the author of Hebrews, starting in verse 7 of chapter 1, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8, but of the Son, capital S, of the Messiah, of the Son, he says, and then he quotes this psalm, And says that it's about the Messiah. Says, But of the Son, he says, "...your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." That, in Hebrews 1, 7 and 9, is quoting Psalm 45. Right there, you see it in verse 6 and 7, if you are still got both open somehow. Um, But the author of Hebrews tells us, this psalm is talking about jesus so now you can just relax and not have to uh, scrutinize me and be like is it is this guy you know preaching right hebrews tells you that i'm not mishandling psalm 45 by attributing it to jesus under inspiration hebrews says the son is there in psalm 45 so can we say amen that the son jesus christ the messiah is here in psalm 45 amen, amen. Amen. That's what we're looking at right here. And looking at it that way, it's so beautiful. Some commentators, even Calvin, um, well, I'm not going to throw too much shade on Calvin, but he tries to kind of get... Solomon to fit into what's being talked of. Now granted, he says it's of Solomon and of Christ foreshadowing of Christ as a true better, greater Solomon um, but even trying to have Solomon fit in here at all in my estimation, and many others, it just doesn't work to try to make Solomon be the subject, the king spoken of here in Psalm 45. And I'll explain why just briefly. Um, Solomon, it tells us in numerous times, I won't quote all of them, but numerous times the rulership of Solomon is described as being given Just total peace, security, no enemies, no warfare. And this psalm is talking about this sword and these bow and arrows and this conquest and this war and enemies falling under his feet. And to try to say that that's about Solomon just doesn't make sense because Solomon lived in times of peace. It was supernatural. God just granted the kingdom under his rulership, the entirety of his rulership, peace, calm peace no war. So, Solomon doesn't fit here, and Jesus Christ does fit here, as Hebrews lets us know. And I think that the author, the Sons of Korah, uh, whether or not it's written by a specific son of Korah, I've heard the Sons of Korah as referring to almost like a worship guild, Um, I think I heard it. So, we don't know exactly who wrote this, um, but I think that they purposely, deliberately, didn't like give... Enough detail or enough like data to attribute this to any actual known king in Israel's past or present, but it was looking forward, it was looking future. They were they were waiting for that better king, that king who something like this could be said of. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. This is verse 2. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. There's a foreverness about this king. And I think the writer, under divine inspiration, as we see there in verse 1, is forecasting and awaiting and longing for this awaited Messiah, this king who would be a forever king. So let's just look at this a little bit verse by verse. We might not be able to cover all of it because it's a couple of verses. But the broad strokes I want to cover here. And I hope that the, the the effect of looking at this will be just Awe and joy. There is an undeniable theme of joy here, and so I'm hoping you guys are going to walk away and feel just stirred up to joy at the glories that jump out of this psalm 45. But verse 1, he says, the author of the psalm, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> we're told that the the authors of Scripture, let me just uh, read for you real quick about a, a word about inspiration. 1 Peter one twenty one says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So that's what's happening here, and he's basically saying it right up front. He says, my heart's overflowing with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king, my tongue. It's like the pen of a ready scribe. He's not just having, he's not wrestling with, oh, what should I write about today? He's under inspiration. He's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it's just gushing out of him. I think of that verse in John 7 where it says, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You have that imagery of just overflowing. That's what this author has going on as he's writing this love song. It says, my heart overflows with what? With a, a stern prophetic rebuke to the people of Israel for their idolatry. That happens a lot. So much of the Old Testament, we read through it, and even the New Testament, it's corrective, it's rebuke, it's a little bit trembling, it's a little bit scary, it's like, wow, this God is holy and he has such a high standard. But here, under inspiration, the Holy Spirit inspires the human author to write something that has a pleasing theme, and it's a love song about the Messiah, I don't know how that strikes you, but it it reminds me of how Jesus shows up on the scene. He's the Messiah, and one of his first wonders he performs is he just makes water into wine. Good, alcoholic, celebratory wine. Some people try to say, oh, he's just making grape juice because Jesus could not possibly want people to drink wine. He made good wine, where they're like, usually you save this stuff for they were they they noticed this is good wine that was one of his first miraculous signs and what does that tell me that tells me pastor tim often i'm indebted to him for this observation that the lord jesus god concerned with the things that pertain to our joy it's not just harsh taskmaster, I, even as Christians, I mean the Jews certainly under the just the heavy burden of keeping the law, they felt the burdensomeness of trying to walk after God and fulfill his commands, but even we as new covenant Christians, we can have a sense in which the Christian life becomes tiresome and wearying and burdensome and the joy of it just seems to disappear But this, because we get wrong thoughts, and I think the devil loves doing this. He loves just trying to twist and distort and obscure the nature of God to where we no longer see him as someone who would ever write a love song, inspire something by his spirit of eternal value that is a pleasing Theme with all these punctuated moments that talk about gladness, gladness, joy, joy. That's all over the psalm. So the human author is writing with that kind of flavor, that kind of mood. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses, poetry, if you will. It's a love song, after all. I address my verses to the king, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And we already know that this king, he's not just writing to about Solomon or some unnamed Israel king. I think he's seeing prophetically towards the Messiah, and he's writing towards him. So he's, he's who this love song is addressed towards. But let's go on. Verse 2, it says, you, this king that the author sees, you are the most Handsome of the sons of men, grace is poured upon your lips, therefore, God has blessed you forever. I love this. And this is about Jesus. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I mean, the author could. I mean, there, if it's just about a king of Israel, then there's a little bit of flattery. It sounds like going on here to say like, "Oh, king, you're the most handsome person that ever existed ever." To say that to any person, it just doesn't feel as uh, sincere or authentic or believable. But if we're applying this to Jesus, and you say, "You're the most, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life," that fits. That makes sense. But I can hear. At least this came to my mind, a little kind of question, friction point, and objection. Wait, Chris, if this is about Jesus, doesn't Isaiah tell us that he had no form or majesty that we should behold him, that there, that he was basically not super attractive? But this says he's the most handsome of the sons of men. I think the way that we can resolve that apparent contradiction is just by, uh, this is the way it makes sense for me. Um... Isaiah 53, where it talks about Jesus and his earthly ministry, where he takes the form of a servant, and he's not glowing. He doesn't look like Thor. He's not a supermodel. He just looks so normal. No former majesty. I think this is talking about Jesus emptying himself, appearing as a normal man in his pre-glorified state, and that actually here in Psalm 45, we're seeing Jesus glorified we're seeing him exalted we're seeing him as king all lifted up the suffering is done he's accomplished his mission and now he looks obviously the most handsome man that's ever existed. He's the perfect, perfect man. We see that with uh, with John, right? When he's on the island of Patmos and he gets this vision of Jesus, and this is John. John knew Jesus, and when he sees him in the glorified state, he's like a dead man. He sees someone with eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze, and he has a golden sash around his chest. And And he looks beautiful in his glorified state, our Messiah. I don't think we can any longer say, oh, he has no former majesty. There's majesty about him now that he's glorified. And we can say this certainly applies to him. Verse two, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. And then I love how it, the first feature that it mentions in verse two, after leaving saying, oh, you're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured on your Lips, lips. It's 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 his lips that are the first item of, of handsomeness, of beauty, of wow. And I don't think it's the, the dimensions of his lip. I don't think it's the color, I don't think it's the texture, I think it's the grace of his lips. Listen to these verses that speak of Jesus. I, I think uh, it'll it'll make it make sense a little more even. Take the New Testament here and let it help us interpret the Old. Listen to what it says about Jesus in Luke four twenty two. And all, this is speaking of Jesus, and all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. He was speaking like it says it, John, John seven forty six. No one ever spoke like this man and then John 6:68 6, lord to whom shall we go you have the word of eternal life going back to psalm 45 verse 2 grace is poured on your lips he's talking like no one's ever talked and it's beautiful it's gracious it's it's magnetic <laughs> For some, others are furious at him. And what a, what a evidence of total depravity that God in the flesh with the most grace poured upon his lips ever can be standing, walking around the planet. And people would say, he has a demon. That's disgusting, but that's fallen men. God could be standing right in front of you, and you could say, I don't see anything, I don't see anything good about this. And in fact, I see something that looks ugly and dark. That's us. God comes to his own, and his own doesn't even recognize him. The earth he created, he comes into it, and people are like, Who are you? Oh, but he is the most handsome of the sons of men in verse 2 grace is poured upon his lips therefore God has blessed you forever this is a forever king pivoting into verse 3 don't let the beauty and the grace of this king get you too comfortable because he is armed and he's dangerous and he's not just this handsome uh, soft speaking man and oh everyone he listen to verse 3 Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. Lots of people are just pretty boys. They look attractive, but they can't do nothing. And they don't know how to to wave a sword. They don't know how to wield a a weapon, but they, they look real good. This is not just a handsome man. This is a dangerous man. This is a mighty king. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. I said this, I preached this last Sunday and I'm doing it again this Sunday because Jim asked me to fill in at the last minute. So I'm like, I can't come up with a new sermon. I just need to do what I did last week. But I said this last week and it's that this sword on the thigh of of our king, our Messiah, our mighty one, it's not a decorative sword. There's like this English monarchical kind of, oh, there's, you know, these swords and these guys walk around and, you know, there's no, there's probably never been one drop of blood on the blade of any of those uh, guys' swords. It's just all for show. It's decorative. It's formal. This is not a Decorative sword on the thigh of this Messiah. He is beautiful. His lips are gracious, yes. But also proceeding from his mouth, as we read in Revelation, is a sharp, two-edged sword. He's armed. He's dangerous. Don't get comfortable because of his beauty. Admire him for, look at these words in verse 3. Splendor. Majesty. Mighty. Mighty one. Verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. I'll pause right here for a second. My wife back here, uh, her mom actually illuminated this thing for me. I I didn't know this little uh, fun fact. But Jesus riding on the donkey actually has some some kind of background to it. It's like when you're riding on the donkey, it's almost like a symbol of, I'm not here for war, I'm here for peace. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus riding in on the donkey, there's like a symbolic element to that. As he, He's not here for war. He's coming with glad tidings of peace. He's inviting. He, his, his ministry is one of, guys, come on in. But at his return, he's no longer riding the donkey. He's riding a white horse, and there's a sword on his thigh. So that's just a brief note about this riding imagery, this riding language that we see in verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously. He's there. Victory over what? Over enemies. He's conquering. There is not just a a pageantry and a parade kind of thing going on here. He's actually showing up with a sword, and he's actually going to do justice and vengeance. But listen to this. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness if you've got an armed man walking around riding on a horse and he's a tyrant and he's just indiscriminately killing anyone who disagrees with him then you have reason to be like whoa I'm super afraid but it tells us that this guy this guy how dare I this majestic king this figure here this Messiah riding out Victoriously, he's doing so for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He stands for something. He has a cause, and it's a virtuous, good, noble, upright cause. He is a warrior who's a just, good warrior. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Verse 5 says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. There is a psalm that actually describes the Messiah in a similar way. Um, Let me just actually reinforce this with just a couple of little quick cross-references. Exodus 15.3 says the Lord is a warrior. That's who He actually is. We can't blush about that aspect of who He is. There's all kinds of kind of blushing I think, from American Christians who want to make Jesus a hippie. A hippie who says, it's just peace and love, man exodus, that, you just can't get that from scripture. Yes, he's gentle. Yes, he's meek. Yes, he invites. Yes, he has so much mercy and so much slow to anger. But that anger isn't non-existent. He's just very slow to it. He's being so patient with mankind. But at some point, that we're going to see this Lord as a warrior and we have an opportunity to get on the right side of this warrior and be riding with him as those who are concerned with righteousness and meekness and truth or we miss our chance to ally with him and we stand as his enemies and this warrior is one all the kings of the earth can assemble all their chariots and horses and fighter jets and whatever you want to say they are not going to do a single bit of injury to this king, this warrior, this God the Lord is a warrior the Lord is his name he's a little bit scary but it's a good i mean the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom it does us good to reflect on this aspect of who he is our jesus who appeared the first time meek mild <laughs> he's not doing injury to anyone he's doing the opposite he's healing people he's bringing people back from the dead but his second his second coming his return we're going to see The side of him, the aspect of him that we hear about here, this warrior who's armed, who's dangerous, who has not just a sword, but it says there in verse 5, your arrows are sharp. He's got a sword and he's got bow and arrows too. I'll read you just a quick psalm where it says this same thing. Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation. Every day, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him, the unrepentant man, he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Our God... I don't think of him often this way, but Psalm 45 shows our God as an archer, and his aim is impeccable. If you are unrepentant, you will be pierced through by one of these arrows, and you will not recover. Your arrows are sharp, verse 5, in the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples, fall under you. So we're getting this very kind of balanced view of God, I mean, as absolutely beautiful, grace on his lips, but mighty and vengeful and an executor of justice. He's no joke. He's no one to be trifled with. The New Testament says, consider both the kindness and the severity of our God. Our psalm is doing that. We're seeing kindness, beauty, and we're seeing severity towards those that are his enemies. But let's pivot into verse 6. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I don't know. Doesn't that strike you as a, like a little bit? For me, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of tension that you have here. you got this warrior. He's got weapons. His enemies are falling under his feet. But then it says that God has anointed this Messiah warrior king with oil of gladness. He's a happy warrior. There's a gladness about him as he's doing this conquest, this, this thing. And I think we'll see why more and more as this develops. But <laughs> this is very notable to me. Verse 7. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness. Let me read you real quick. You could turn there if you want. You don't have to. But I'll, yeah, let me just read it for you. Zephaniah three seventeen. This uh, this hits on the same theme right here. Listen to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The NASB says a victorious warrior. A mighty one who will save, or a victorious warrior, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You've got this Messiah who's mighty, who's a warrior, who's doing vengeance. And at the same time, there's a sense in which he's glad and he's singing. Do we think about God this way? I didn't until I'm looking at Psalm 45 and just seeing these things leap out and applying them to the Messiah as the author of Hebrews does in chapter 1 and just seeing Jesus in this different way and it's glorious. I love it. But he's the warrior and he's a happy warrior i oh i i do believe that the devil is so after making you see imbalance in the character and the nature of god you either see him as just all warrior and he's angry all the time and he's just disappointed with you all the time or he's just all singing and you could do no wrong and universalism and everyone's going to heaven you gotta see the balance of, it's not one or the other, it's actually both. He's the singing one, and the beautiful one, and he's the warring one, and the just one, and the upright one, and the majestic, all splendor, all these words, such high language. He's overflowing with all these words. I, I, I love the language of this psalm. But anointed with the oil of gladness, beyond your companions. I love that. We see this, I imagine just this big company of the, all the host of heaven, the angels and the, the saints and uh, the, 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 the whole company of the redeemed ones that are with this riding Messiah. And no one's happier than than Jesus. It says above all your companions. Uh, I, we just don't think about I don't think I have necessarily always imagined Jesus Christ the Messiah as being there's no one happier than Him. If I'm honest, I tend more to think of God as the the angry type, because that, that just seems natural, right? It's like, I'm a sinner, I'm a wretch, I'm messed up. It, it just makes sense for him to be disappointed with me all the time and angry with me. And, oh, you know, I just love you in spite of you. And, oh, you're so lucky that I've covered you and bailed you out, but, oh, I just want to smush you. If I'm honest, I am often tempted to have thoughts about God that are not actually in harmony with how God looks at me. In this Zephaniah 3 light, rejoicing over me with singing? Rejoicing over you if you're a born-again Christian and he's bought you by his blood. Can you believe that the Lord Jesus could rejoice about you and sing over you and delight in you? That doesn't come as... It's easier for us to say and to think, a supernatural revealing for the, to actually believe Lord, you love me. <laughs> you love me in spite of me. You, And when you do sense that and feel that, and it hits home in your heart, it's so wonderful and affirming that you're no longer under that arrow tip. You're no longer under that blade tip of his justice and vengeance, but you're in the hand of his acceptance. He actually does love you. I know it sounds like Sunday school kids stuff, But you have to war for believing throughout your pilgrimage that Jesus actually does love you if you're his. (laughs) Believe it and be so glad that he loves you in spite of you and all of your messy failure to follow him perfectly. But a glad Savior, yes, a mighty Savior, but one who is able to rejoice over this certain category of people with singing, with gladness, anointed with the oil of gladness. Listen to this, too. I find this so wonderful and and, and rich. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 3. We see another appearance of this phrase, oil of gladness. And and this time it's just applied a little bit differently. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. We know Jesus took this and quoted this in the synagogue. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, then go on a little bit, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. If we're, do you see what's going on there? You've got the anointed one going to his people and pouring on them this same sharing with them if you will this oil of gladness so that he is glad over them and they are glad over him and the application point here is just a reminder of oh christian be glad when you actually meditate upon what's true about you I know that in the domain of the mind and spiritual warfare fiery darts fly at us and try to destabilize us and make us doubt this very thing that we are approaching an absolutely glorious future, and it's guaranteed. The Lord has guaranteed the perseverance of His saints. I'm not trying to make you just sit back and be passive and say, okay, well, if I'm going to persevere to the end, then Lord, I could just kind of sit back and take it easy. I don't want you to take that, but I do want to affirm you and comfort you with your future because of Christ is secure, and it's glorious, and it ought to produce a gladness, an oil of gladness. Do we walk around like that? Are we characterized by that? Are Christians walking around with a continued, inappropriate mourning and a faint spirit and ashes? (laughs) Isaiah 61, I'm drawing from that imagery. He's saying, I'm going to give you this instead of this. I'm going to give you a beautiful headdress Instead of ashes. The oil of gladness. Instead of mourning. The garment of praise. Instead of a faint spirit. Are you under just a chronic sense of faint spiritedness perhaps. I would just bring your attention to what the Lord has as this love song to his beloved bride. So let's just keep going on here. How are we doing with time? Okay. Go on to verse We just went through verse 7, therefore God your God has anointed you, Jesus the Messiah, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then we see in Isaiah 61 that this Messiah, this anointed one, is giving this gladness to those he's redeemed, to his people. We should be a glad people in light of what Christ has done for us. And verse 8, just listen to this language, listen to what goes on with the author. It's poetry, it's a love song. Your robes, the robes of the Messiah, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. There's a mood here. It's gladness. And listen to how the author is just marshalling the senses. He's appealing to the senses. He's saying, guys, just smell the scene. He's wearing robes, and he's not just sweaty and disgusting and covered in blood and dirt and grime from the battle of his uh, war, conquest, and his campaign. He's wearing these robes, and he smells Wonderful. Now, I don't know what aloes and cassia and all this stuff smells like, but the king's robes, I can assure you, they smell wonderful and the psalmist is sitting here just almost bringing your senses and your imagination into the scene and just saying do you smell this king do you smell this messiah do you see the robes that he's wearing they smell wonderful they're all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia and then he so he appeals to the the sense of smell and then he's talking about There's a sound of music, and the Messiah himself has been made glad by the sound of stringed music. It doesn't even tell us just harps or just violins. It's just stringed instruments. There's all kinds of different instruments, I suspect, in this heavenly environment this day, this celebratory occasion, and there's stringed instruments from ivory palaces and the king, the Messiah, he's glad at the sound of music. Appropriate, fitting for the occasion, joyous music that is being played. So all these senses, smell and sight and 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 sound, the, the celebration is going on. The Messiah himself is glad and we're being invited in to just see this little whisper, this little picture of this great glorious day. Why is this occasion so glad? Who's all there. Listen, we're going to pivot down. Oh, well, first, let me just, I mean, I like how this sort of gives an extra sense of visual, extra sense of imagery, more detail to kind of imagine when the Lord Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you that you may be with me where I am Jesus preparing a place. And then here we see ivory palaces, plural, music, robes. (laughs) Jesus was not just talking strictly poetically there. They're real places. They're prepared for a certain people. And some of you guys are those people. (laughs) I feel like, oh, Lord, help us actually see it and believe it, that this stuff is real, that this stuff awaits us as the redeemed ones. That's verse 8: ivory palaces, stringed instruments. But then look at verse 9: says, Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Who's a queen married to? Who's the bride of Christ? I don't know why I've never seen this. I've read this psalm a number of times as a Christian. I've never thought of even the phrase of the church being the king's queen. It's just a little different flavor, a little different imagery. You hear the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. I'm familiar with that. I think about that. But to read this and just ask the simple question, who is this queen? I'm reading this fresh uh, a couple weeks back, and I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I'm just reading a psalm. And then I come across this queen. I'm like, wait, who's this? And then it hits me. Oh, my goodness. This is the church. This is me, the queen. Such an exalted state. Such an honorable state. Such a noble state that God would take the slave girl. I, I just we were slaves to sin. We were so filthy, so contaminated, so dirty, so messed up, so defiled by the things that we've done and the things that we've thought and the things that we've said. And then Jesus Christ the Messiah enters in and provides cleansing and provides robes and and fills us with the Spirit and gives us a new nature. And now, instead of being this slave girl destined for destruction and prison and the due penalty for our sin, we're exalted to this place where we're in the company of the most beautiful king that ever was and we're his queen. (laughs) I don't know how to talk about it without getting lit up with some sense of emotion because I believe it (laughs) do you believe it (laughs) do you believe that you're his queen that you are even men here just deal with the imagery you're his queen you're with him you're the one he loves and puts look at this at his right Hand At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. You might remember a psalm that says something about the right hand. What does it say? Are at the right hand of God. Who? Say it again. Psalm 1611. In your presence... There is fullness of joy at your right hand. Right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy and the pleasure of the bride of Christ. Guys, just picture this with me for a second. Picture you've got yourself a friend, she's a lady. And she's not like the most beautiful lady, but this rich, powerful man has made an absolute promise to her. He's put an engagement ring on her finger and says, I choose you. We're getting married. I Here's my pledge. You know that I'm good on this. I'm coming for you. You're, I'm going to marry you. And this woman, just little simple woman who, who grows in beauty over time, the church, we don't always look so beautiful, uh, but we are growing in beauty as we are sanctified. But imagine this woman engaged to an extremely rich, extremely powerful, good, kind, merciful, kingly type of man. And she walks around miserable or just a little bit dull a little bit and, and people are passing by like wait aren't you engaged to that 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 rich super handsome man she's like yeah i guess I don't know if you'll make good on it. That would be an inappropriate way to live if that was true about that woman. And for the church, how much more so is it true that it's not appropriate? I get it. There are seasons. I mean, Jesus says, through many tribulations, you will have sorrow, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And how can you read something like this and believe it's true and not have some sense of awe, Lord? Thank you for that love letter that tells me about my future, that shows me what it's going to look like. I get to be at your right hand where there are pleasures and joy, and I'm there as your queen. almost It sounds like too good to be true. We feel like that Shulamite woman from Song of Psalms where she's saying to the king, she says, don't look at me. I've been in the fields. I'm all sunburned. I'm, I've been out here keeping the vineyards of others, and I haven't even kept my own vineyard. Don't look on me. I'm, I'm, I'm dark. I'm, I'm sunburned. And the king looks at her, and he's like, you're beautiful. <laughs> He affirms her. He loves her. It comes so naturally to us to say, why do you want to have anything to do with me? I'm so messed up. <laughs> that We need help to actually believe that God's love is as rich and abundant and overflowing for people like us. We need the Spirit's help. I'm not gonna be able to do it for you, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would just through this little psalm, reflect not little psalm, this little sermon on this psalm. I can't possibly do this psalm justice with just a little bit of time. But guys, please believe it. Please, if if joy is lacking in the Christian walk for you, go to God and say, Lord, would you please give me some token, some whiff of this fragrance of your robes, some little token of your love towards me that just lets my pilgrimage, though it be through many snares and toils and tribulations, that I can walk with this pilgrimage and just pull out this love letter and smell it and say, oh, it's all worth it. It's all completely worth it. I'm going somewhere where all the tears are going to be gone and the fragrance is going to be wonderful and the music is going to be wonderful and the king I'm going to be with him it's, it's such good news I hope you believe it I hope you're catching it I hope the spirit's ministering to you in some way that makes you feel like I do believe this stuff so that's verse 8 oh I'm not going to have time but <laughs> verse 10 It says, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Forget your people, forget your father's household. Don't let any earthly relationship make you say, I'm too busy, I can't come to the wedding banquet. I've got something else I need to attend to. Don't let any earthly relationship, father's house or, or your people, whatever it is, just hear, oh daughter, consider, incline your ear, Forget, forget. I don't mean you do dishonor to everyone and you just say, oh, I hate my family. It's in comparison to this king. Your primary allegiance is towards him. Don't be kept away from him by any earthly relationship, any earthly allegiance. Hear, oh daughter. That's verse 10. Then 11, it says, you do this and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. I love that this part is included in the psalm. We see this queen, she's at this noble, dignified position, and she is given such beauty and such honor, and yet she is not so puffed up and taken away with her own beauty and privileges that she's too proud to just bow. This queen, this beautiful queen, she is not like Lucifer who says, Oh, I'm pretty beautiful. I should get some attention. She is a humble queen, and she does not blush or hesitate to bow in homage before her king. This is not a compulsory, fearful, trembling bow like, Oh, please don't cast me out of your kingdom. It's just a bow of reverence. It's a bow of safety. She knows she's loved, but she bows in honor to her king. That's the posture of this bride. Then verse 12 says, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. There's these places in the Scripture where it talks about just the wealth of the nations flowing in to the people of God, the, the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem we got these wedding gifts. If I'm picturing this as the wedding day, it's like wedding gifts are flowing in from all the earth, all the nations, bringing their gifts, paying homage to the king. Verse 13 says, All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. We've got this wedding party. Multiple women, they're following through and they're not like, Oh, I'm sweating my makeup. Oh, this dress is so uncomfortable. I know if you've ever been in a wedding, women, you know. Like Sometimes you're not always in the most salvatory, lighthearted mood because these earthly weddings are a shadow of the celestial, cosmic, beautiful wedding that will have none of those little... uh, blunders and blemishes on the occasion. But you see this princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. Gold on the queen, gold on the princess. These are not a bunch of just uh, let don't get tripped up by all the different characters i think these are all representative of the one beautiful all-encompassing people of god the princess the queen the virgin companions i think these all compose just the new jerusalem the big company that is new jerusalem in fact revelation talks about the new jerusalem as a Holy city. Listen to just Revelation twenty-one, two. Says, "And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband." Then it says it again in Revelation twenty-one says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. And in verse nine, sorry, I skipped something, says, all right, Revelation 21, verse nine, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So the angel is showing the wife of the Lamb, the Bride of Christ. And he carried me, me away in the spirit to a great Haman and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So this Bride of Christ, it's a lot, it's a whole city. It's a, so so don't get tripped up in Psalm 45 when you see these multiple characters, a queen and princesses and virgin companions, and be like, wait, is God marrying like it, it representative of one people of God, one church, one bride? But it says there in verse 15, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king this is where we're all headed y'all when we got a pilgrimage through a dark shadowy land but we're headed to this palace that's been prepared for us by jesus christ our messiah and then verses 16 and 17 in this glorious messianic psalm says, and the, the language shifts here. It's no longer talking uh, about uh, the bride of Christ anymore. It's talking about the Messiah himself. It says, In place of your fathers shall be your sons you will make them princes in all the earth. Jesus the Messiah. It switches from a feminine kind of picture here of the bride and the queen and the princess to these sons being princes princes in all the earth. So God doesn't, the Messiah, He doesn't just have a decorative people like, oh, these are, these are my people, these are my subjects. He actually includes them to be ruling and reigning with Him. I don't have time to show all the places in Revelation where it talks about us actually being reigning with Jesus. If I'm honest, that language is a little bit like that seems too good to be true that i get to go from being the person who deserves his punishment to exalted to such a place as he girds himself to serve me and i'm reigning with him what on? i mean there's that place where it says don't you know that you'll judge angels like what some of the stuff it says about us i just it's hard for me to really say okay lord I believe that. <laughs> Reigning with Christ, He will make them princes in all the earth. The thing that awaits us in the new heavens and earth, it's just so glorious. It's its like too much. <laughs> it shall, but Spirit of God, help all of us as His bride to believe these things, internalize them, and be a people that are just hopeful and full of joy. Joy inexpressible at believing that this is actually our inheritance, purchased by Christ for none of our own deserving and merits, but just to the praise of his glory that we, this slave girl so defiled by sin could be saved and redeemed put in these beautiful robes interwoven with gold and called his queen, his bride, the one who he desires their beauty, who he rejoices over with singing, who never know the sword of his justice, but only know the hand of his, his caress, his pleasure, his kindness. What joy awaits us at the right hand of our Messiah King Verse 17 says, I will cause your name, the name of Jesus, the Messiah, this King, to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Those angels, I had this thought this morning. The angels in Isaiah 6, the angels in Revelation, they're they're creatures that know nothing of sin. They're pure and perfect and holy. And they, in the presence of God, are just, I want to say, losing it. I mean, angels have no sense of impropriety. They're perfect. But I mean, they're reacting in a profound way to the glory of God. And they have no sin at all they don't know anything about being forgiven we know something angels don't understand we know what it is to not deserve and to be forgiven and so if the angels are praising him forever and it's not getting old then how much more we as redeemed ones who know what mercy is are going to be praising him forever and ever and it's not going to be static and boring and like oh we're singing this song again worthy is the lamb we're going to be just fine with the continued forever infinite eternal worship of the Lamb of God of the triune God it's not gonna be boring it's going to be joys and pleasure forevermore and it's awaiting the elect if you're sitting here and you know you've not been born again the Lord hasn't given you a brand new heart Still, when someone talks about Jesus, you just don't see anything to be so excited about. You're like, what's this guy on about? All this, why is he why is he so stoked? Why is he so excited? If you know that this has just never happened to you, you've never seen Jesus as beautiful, then I would just plead with you. Get alone with God whenever, wherever, however, and plead with him, Lord, show me the beauty of Christ because I want to be here at this day. I don't want to know the sword of your justice and the arrow of your punishment. I want to be like that bride before you in glory. I want to know your kindness and your love forevermore. Don't miss out on this glorious celebratory day that is real, that is celestial, that is eternal, and that's waiting in the blink of an eye. Before you know it, you're going to be old, you're going to be off the face of this earth, and it is appointed man once to die and then judgment, where we all have to give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or evil, On Judgment Day, how can any sinful person ever have hope of being safe in front of such a holy, blazing, pure, transcendent, righteous God unless by way of Him? paying off our sins, cleansing away our defilement, and giving us something undeserved, giving us salvation by grace, not by anything works-based that we've done, but by what He's done for us. That is what we're going to celebrate and remember in the partaking of the elements. So let's transition to that. We can keep with the theme of Revelation and read just a quick text Before we partake of the Lord's table together, we can read from, I had a scripture here. What is this scripture from Revelation? Revelation 5, starting in verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for... You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall Reign on the earth. It is by blood that any of us have been ransomed and brought into this priesthood of the believers. This place of reigning and ruling with him... It is by blood, not our own. The blood of another, the blood of a perfect one, the blood of the Messiah that we remember. He didn't come down as a phantom. He didn't come down as a spirit. He's not an apparition. He was real flesh real blood really truly sinless and pure on our behalf he led the perfect life that we could never ever live no man ever did it you heard reese just go through judges and the kings and the failures and the failures did that do it did that do it finally this messiah came in the flesh and he did what no man what adam failed to do what moses couldn't do what no prophet before could do god's spoken to us in many times in many ways by the prophets but now in these last times he spoken to us by his son and this son came to lay down his life his sinless pure life john the baptist said he knew who he was looking i said behold The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you've been born again, that's your sins. Your sins are gone. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we remember that every Sunday that we eat these elements. We remind ourselves, oh my goodness, you came. And it even has a... That's got a logical element to it. It says we eat these things and we proclaim his death until he returns, until he comes again. So let's eat, let's drink, let's remember him, and let's remember that he is returning, and oh, what a day it will be. Let's pray before we partake of these elements. Well, actually, I will invite you to get them, and then we'll pray statues, yeah, they-